Here's something new and exciting. Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World is now on social media with uplifting slash mind-bending updates throughout the week. So please follow me on Facebook at David Sachs Spiritual Tools or on Instagram, David Sachs Spiritual Tools. Hi, this is David Sachs and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, <clears throat> I'm glad you're here. Uh, we've got a lot to discuss. I, I uh, had a, a, a rush of ideas uh, heading into this um, heading into this talk, so we'll see if we can get them all out. A lot of um, new thinking and uh, new perspectives about... Um, the whole sin of the golden calf, trying to wrap our minds around that. And from a very interesting um, halachic um, perspective, which, um, which will be new, I think, to, to, to everyone. And, uh, and, and believe it or not, it, it, there's a spiritual principle. Let's just dive right in. Um, there's a spiritual principle <clears throat> that is uh, in the world of kashrus. Okay, in terms of keeping kosher. And this notion is called choser lener, um, which um, I will explain what that means in a moment. But let me, let me just tell you how it works. So imagine I have a pot of chicken soup. And now um, everybody knows that it's forbidden to mix meat and milk. Um, but let's say, you know, accidents happen. And let's say I'm cooking this pot of chicken soup, which is kosher chicken soup, and accidentally a drop of milk falls into this pot of chicken soup. So I think most of you are familiar with the um, uh, concept of batal bashishim, which means that if there's 60, 60, if there's 60 times the chicken soup against the, the uh, unkosher product, now, in this instance, it's kosher milk, but um, the the unkosher factor is that you can't mix milk with meat, right? So it's unkosher in, in that sense. So you've got one drop of milk and 60 times or more of the chicken soup. Well, in that situation, what happens is, is that because you have batal bashishim, because you have 60 times more, the drop of milk becomes bittel. Bittel means nullified. And bittel is actually a very amazing concept and very central concept in Jewish thought. So, you know, what's so great about Torah, uh, one of the fantastic things about Torah, is that you see that it, 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 it straddles the spectrum from the most minute details um, about life, uh, you know, you could call them the most mundane aspects of life, and it goes into, you know, just meta metaphysics, <laughs> into like the most galactic, you know, conceptual, Kabbalistic, otherworldly places as well. And it goes from the, the smallest to the greatest. And, and halacha is with you the entire journey along the way. So you have like, you know, principles, principles of how we're supposed to act throughout the entire process. 
So the reason why I bring that up is because we have a concept of bittel, which which is talking about how this one drop of milk within the chicken soup becomes nullified because you have 60 times more than it, right? But on the more sort of conceptual, rarefied character, um, dveikistic, you know, attaching yourself to God level, bittel is also an essential concept in terms of our own lives. Meaning to say, well, let me give you an example, and it's a very deep thing for a person to have in mind when they say Shema, right? When we say Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, everybody knows that's the hallmark, that's a hallmark verse of, of Judaism, of Torah, because basically that's saying that God is one and there is no power other than Hashem. You know, it's just the oneness of God. Now, when you cover your eyes and you, you say the Shema, you're supposed to have in mind that the whole world belongs to God, that you're willing to die for God, that the only thing that exists is God, including yourself. In other words, within the greater oneness of God, you don't even exist. So in other words, when you say Shema, you have an opportunity to, if you contemplate just like the fact that just God fills the entire world and that that's all there is, is God, you can either, even reach the, the idea of bittel within yourself. In other words, you can disappear within the oneness of God, which is an awesome kavana, an, an awesome thing to have in mind while you're saying Shema, okay? So again, what I'm showing you is that this concept of bittel, nullification, applies to the details of a drop of, drop of errant milk that falls into a pot of chicken soup, all the way to our very essence of our own lives, okay? Okay, but let's get back to this idea, because I want to tell you the new surprising idea in Kashrus, which I think will be new to most people here. This idea is called Choser Vener. Choser Vener. And what this principle says is something very surprising, and you're going to see that there are going to be spiritual implications to this idea as well, Okay? And again, we're talking about the golden calf right now. And, and uh, well, let's, we'll build the thought, but, but just keep that in the, in the back of your head, okay? So what is Choser Vener? So imagine now, let's revisit our pot of chicken soup, okay? You have a pot of chicken soup, and a drop of milk falls in the chicken soup, and you have more than 60 times the chicken soup than the drop of milk, Okay, everything is good. All right, now comes the complication. You ready? Now, accidentally, remember, you can never add, um, you can never um, purposefully add milk to chicken soup because maybe you'll say, well, I like creamed chicken soup. Like, that would be good. And I know how to do it because I've learned a little Torah. And as you know, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. So you might think to yourself, I will, I, I know my way around kashrus, and I'm such a gourmet. What I will do is I'll add a little milk, knowing that there's more than 60 times that amount of milk. And voila, I've come up with kosher cream chicken soup. I'm a genius. Okay, so you can't do the concept of bato bashishim, this type of 60 against 1 nullification on purpose. You cannot do that, okay? Just, just that's one of the laws of 
keeping kosher. Okay. So now let's revisit our instance again. I've that's not Choser Vener, by the way. We're still getting to that idea, which we're going to say now. So again, here's the story. I've got my pot of chicken soup. I accidentally, keyword, dropped in some milk, and I've got 60 times the chicken soup than that milk. And now here comes part two. Again, accidentally, more milk drops into the chicken soup. Now here's what Choser Lenair says. You ready? And it's somewhat surprising. And I'll explain to you if you don't get the surprising part immediately. What happens is with this new amount of chicken soup that comes in, it reawakens the old drop. And now I need 60 times the combined total. And if I don't have 60 times the combined total, you got to throw out the whole pot of chicken soup. Because now this is now Basar Vachalov. This is now a mixture of milk and meat, and it's completely usher. It's completely forbidden. Okay? So you got to just get rid of it at that point. Okay. So this is a very interesting idea, isn't it? Because um, what's surprising about it is you could have argued, and, and the rabbis considered this thought mightily, by the way, that once that initial drop of soup was mevatled, right? It was bittle. Once we got rid of that initial drop of soup, why is it a player in the game anymore? I mean, this is, from my very sort of optimistic standpoint, <laughs> this would have been my assumption, right? Why does it continue to exist in the background? that the new stuff that enters into the picture can reawaken it. I thought I got rid of it. But still you see that its its presence, its shadowy presence is there and can reemerge. Very interesting. Very interesting. You know, on a very deep level, the word um, kaper, as in the word yom kippur, means actually in Hebrew to cover over. It doesn't mean to disappear. <laughs> Do you understand? So so really what that means is, is that on a very deep level, that initial drop, so to speak, was covered over. It didn't like existentially disappear. It just got deactivated. But now it can be reactivated. Now again, there are many spiritual implications to this. Because what happens what happens when um, I get rid of a trait within myself and I really do get rid of it within myself on, on, on some level, on, on what I thought was a complete level, and now it has the capacity to be reawakened, reawakened within myself. Do, do you understand the implications of this? And now let's get to the Chet Egel, the sin of the golden calf. Because Rav Frummer 
is going to apply this spiritual concept of Choser Lenair reawakening an old problem to understanding the enormity of the sin of the golden calf. Remember that in Jewish thought, the sin of the golden calf was not just one of many sort of like complaints that we made against God and, and, and rebellions and things like that. The sin of the golden calf has a, a very kind of central ongoing presence um, in, terms of, in terms of our lives. Say, Lynn, Lynn Gold, are you there? Yes. Can you mute yourself, please? Okay, awesome. Thank you so much. Um, so the, 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 the sin of the golden calf um, has, has this quality. So, so let's, let's, let's track in, in, in Jewish thought what role it plays, okay? Because Rav Frimer teaches in the Eretz Svi, that, that what happened was, and, and basically all the, it's not just Rav Frimer, just all the great thinkers, all the Jewish thinkers um, agree with, with this idea. That, you see, the Talmud says that when we, re, when we accepted the Torah at Mount Sinai, something unbelievable happened. Something like, un, spiritually speaking, it was like this, this nuclear, you know, like, like amazingly wonderful thing, which is that we returned to the level of Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, before they ate from the tree of knowledge. Okay, I'm going to say that again, because this is like a very giant idea. When we accepted the Torah at Mount Sinai, we return to the level of Adam and Eve before they ate from the tree of knowledge. Okay? What happened then was that we did the sin of the golden calf 40 days after we got the Torah. Now, what the sin of the golden calf did was it was Choser Lenair, it reawakened the sin of eating from the tree of knowledge. And it brought death back into the world. In other words, one of the consequences, it says it right in the Torah itself, one of the consequences of eating from the tree of knowledge was that we brought death into the world. When we accepted the Torah, the world reached this level beyond death. And then when we did the sin of the golden calf, death came back into the world again. So, so, so we have to understand the dynamics of this. And we're going to go more deeply into this, okay? So the question is the following. What did we do, what did we do wrong when we ate from the tree of knowledge? All right, and over the years, this has like been a central question in these talks. We've revisited it again and again and again, uh, looking at different angles of exactly how we 
negatively impacted ourselves in the world by eating from the tree of knowledge. But I'm going to put it in a very simple, um, clear way right now, okay? Basically, what happened was we made ourselves into the final authority. In other words, and, and the implication of that is that we made ourselves into God, or we tried to make ourselves into God. Okay, obviously only God is God. Um, and this was the problem. And by the way, if you look at the language, the, the snake itself says, do you know why God doesn't want you to eat from the tree of knowledge? Because God doesn't want competition. If you eat from the tree of knowledge, you're going to join the God club. And God doesn't want that. But you can join it if you want. <laughs> Just eat from the tree. You see, the idea is, ultimately... See, this is, this is a problem that I see in, 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 in people just on the deepest level, which is that, you know, people sometimes, they come a little bit closer to God, they come a little bit closer to Torah and to mitzvot, and, and they think that they're doing God a favor by being, quote unquote, more religious. And th- there's something fundamentally twisted with that. In other words, God is God. We're emanations of God. This is, this is our path. You know, halacha is, is sort of tragically translated into English as Jewish law. To me, that's a, that's a tragedy because halacha literally in the Hebrew just means the way, the path. That's what it means. In other words, if you're an emanation of godliness, you know, there's a, there is a, a natural path for how we exist within the unity of God, within the oneness of God. So the problem happens when we decide how we're going to serve God. In other words, in other words, how, in other words, I'm not commanded. I, I will make myself the final authority and I will decide how I serve God. This is, this is a problem. Because then essentially, if I'm making myself the final authority, I'm making myself into God. So you see, there was something very, very fundamentally, you know, disjointed about, and, and you see, we have a concept called Mita Keneged Mita, which means how we act is how God responds to us. So because we made this separation and we said, I'm God, I'm the final authority, all of a sudden, it became hard to see God. <laughs> all of a sudden, this sort of like this oneness, which was so clear around us, becomes divided into the material world and the spiritual world. And God becomes very hard to see. Because we said we embraced our own physicality, and we claimed ourselves as God, so God says, okay, then that's what you're going to see around you. You're going to just see physicality. Okay. So now what happened? When we got the Torah at Mount Sinai, you know what we said? We said, God, only you're God. <laughs> and this fixed the whole 
issue of eating from the tree of knowledge. We stopped making ourselves the final authority and we said, God, you're the final authority. It's you and it's only you. And that's what the Talmud means when it says that we reach the level of Adam and Chava before they ate from the tree of knowledge. Now comes the sin of the golden calf. Now you have to understand why the sin of the golden calf was so messed up, was so impactful. Because we were not told to make the golden calf. We decided on our own to do it. And we we reinstated ourselves as the final authority. And what did that do? That had, spiritually speaking, this choser Lanair implication, and it reawakened the whole tragic situation of eating from the tree of knowledge. Because now we think we're God again. Okay. So, so now I want to go deeper. Okay? Now you've got the basic concept of why Worshipping the golden calf was like Choser Linair. Okay? It reawakened the old problem. Okay. Now you get it? Now let's let's go deeper. You see, when I heard this, I thought it was a bit of a bummer, right? Because what is the implication of this, spiritually speaking? Are you telling me that I'm never ultimately going to be able to get rid of a problem or do chuva on a problem? That it's always standing in the background, ready to be reawakened? Is, is that what you're saying to me? Is that what this is teaching us? So how do we get around this problem of Choser Lanair? Of we reawakening old problems when the new problem comes in? Okay, so let me give you another here and now situation example of this. Just just I want to make sure that you're relating to this and that this is registering on a very real level because I'm talking about real world problems right now. Even though it might sound very abstract and theological, I'm really talking about your relationship with your wife, with your children, with your friends, with your neighbors, with your coworkers. That's what I'm talking about right now, okay? So let me give you a uh, a more grounded example, okay? Someone hurts your feelings. You forgive them. But you really do forgive them. And now they hurt your feelings again. And what happens in your heart is this new offense combines with the old offense. And now (laughs) their apology isn't enough. Because now this new offense is combined with this old offense and they can't just say, I'm sorry, like they said, I'm sorry last time, because it's not enough. Okay, do you understand now how we're talking about real world situations right now? Okay. So there's a way out of it. What is the way out of it? Now, again... Here's my question on, on, on what we just learned. I just told you that when we, when we, um, when we did, we got the Torah and then we do the sin of the golden calf where we make ourselves the last authority again. Now, here's my question. 
How is that possible? How is it possible after it says, the rabbis teach, that when we received the Torah at Mount Sinai, our souls flew out of our bodies. We, there, was a, there was a mass return from the dead. Two times. Our souls flew out of our bodies when God spoke the first time, and then God returned them and brought us all back from the dead. And then God spoke again, the second commandment, and our souls all flew out of our bodies. And do you know what happened when our souls flew out of our bodies, by the way? We saw that the Torah doesn't just exist as laws in this world. We saw that the Torah itself is the structure of all the heavens. Did you, did you hear what I just said? When our souls th- flew out of our bodies, we didn't just understand that the Torah is just laws for this world. Oh, here's a law book, and I'm telling you, you know, you know, you stop at a yellow light, slow down at a yellow, a blinking red, that's like a stop sign. It's not, that's not what happened. We heard God give the Torah. We understood that there are laws for this world. But when God spoke, our souls flew out of our bodies and we saw that the Torah exists and it's the infrastructure of all the heavenly realms as well. In other words, the Torah is the underpinnings of the entire universe. That's what we saw when our souls left our bodies. And we heard God speak. See, that's, that's what it's talking about when they, they, they use the word synesthesia. Synesthesia means that, that we heard colors and we saw words. In other words, on a sensory level, we went to a completely different, a different place, a place that was beyond in terms of understanding God, beyond the limitations of what we can do within our body, right? That, that, that's the implication of our souls flying out of our bodies, okay? And remember, very essential component, it's not just that we heard God speak. We heard God speak to Moshe. In other words, we were all like Moshe Rabbeinu at Mount Sinai. Okay, Moshe was just Moshe. But that's why it says that after this experience, the Jewish people will believe in Moshe Rabbeinu forever. Because we didn't just hear God speak, we heard God speak to Moshe. So that when Moshe conveyed what God said, we were like, that's 100% right. Because we heard God tell you that. So in other words, our, our confidence in Moshe was not just based on our trust in a revered leader, we were at the business table. We heard all of the minutes of the meeting. So when Moshe said them over, we were like, yeah, that's exactly right. That's very important because our trust in Moshe is, 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 is very, very central to our trust in God. So there's this extra added dimension to, to our knowing that Moshe was 100% accurate. But anyway, let's get back to the point. My question is, 
after we saw, after we heard God speak, and after our souls experienced the truth of Torah and the truth of God, not just in this world, but in all the heavenly realms, how was it possible for us to reinstate ourselves as the final authority? Do do you understand the question? Okay. That is, that is the question. Because remember, how does Choser Lanier work? Well, Choser Lanier works when you've got that pot of chicken soup, you drop the initial drop of milk in it, you've got 60 times chicken soup to that milk, everything's good. Now, accidentally, you drop more milk into the chicken soup, but, but it reawakens that initial drop, and you don't have 60 in terms of the combined total. Okay. That means, getting back to the idea that the sin of the golden calf reawakened the tree of knowledge, that means that somehow I didn't have, after God spoke at Mount Sinai, enough faith in God to cancel out my problem. How is that possible? Okay, so now I'm going to offer an answer. For me, there are many uh, things in the Torah that, you know, I'm just talking on a personal level, that convince me about the truth of the Torah. Okay? Um, I'll give you two examples, but I'm going to dwell on the first one. If there's a whole, um, if you've got a nation of slaves, which the Jewish people were, right? We had been slaves for, you know, a couple hundred years, you know? And you bring them out in the middle of the desert, and there's one person, right, who just appeared recently on the scene. Remember, Moshe was not really known by most of these people. He had been, you know, in exile since, uh, you know, for for many, for decades at the very least, um, many decades at the most. So an unknown leader, you know, shows up. He's around for about a year. He brings approximately two and a half million people into the desert. Now, if if that's going to happen, there's got to be a rebellion that's going to take place, right? I mean, you can't tell me, knowing what you know about human beings, that that's going to be a stable political system. One new leader and two and a half million former slaves, that's a recipe for rebellion. And in fact, so so if the Torah is true, show me where the rebellion against Moshe is. There has to be one. And in fact, that's the story of Korach. You have it. Okay, so that's just one here and now. I'm just talking about in the, you know, on a sociological, political level right now, right? You've got many proofs in terms of just gamatrias and just all sorts of amazing things within the the text itself. But I'm just talking about on a human level right now. I'll give you another example. And this is the one I want to focus on right now. Which is, imagine you're in Egypt and all of these uh, plagues are taking place. And it says in the Torah that all of the plagues happened 
where the Egyptians lived. And the opposite of the plague, meaning a blessing, happened where the Jews were living. Because God was making this separation, right? Like, for instance, it was darkness for the Egyptians, but it was light for the Jews. Okay? If now, at the end, the culmination of the ten plagues, the Jews are finally leaving, and you're an Egyptian, right? You gotta believe that there was a certain number of Egyptians who are like, um, I'm going with them. <laughs> That's who I choose. <laughs> that, I mean, if this really took place, that, that has to have happened, right? And in fact, that did happen. And it's called those, that, that, that group of people from Egypt who are like, that way, you know, Jewered ho, you know, like that group is called the Erev Rav. Okay, now the Erev Rav has a whole very complicated kind of set of dominoes that comes with it. Okay. And by the way, God says, no, says to Moshe, don't take the Erev Rav with you. And Moshe says, what are you talking about, God? They, they want to be attached to you. And so God goes, all right. So, so the Erev Rav come along and they join the Jewish people. Okay, good. Now, what's the problem? The problem is, is that the Erev Rav, now even the Jews were, were engaging in idol worship in Egypt, right? That's all the rabbis say that. Um, but the Erev Rav were deeply, deeply immersed in idol worship. And what happens at the, um, with the sin of the golden calf is the following. And if you don't know this detail, you, you need to know this detail. Because this story doesn't make sense without this detail, okay? The Talmud teaches. See, the Talmud is, is filling in the blanks. See, you have to also know something, which is that the, the non-Jewish world has a, a, a great disadvantage in really trying to understand the Torah, you know, or what they call the Bible, because they don't have the Talmud to explain it. Just the Jewish people have the Talmud to explain it. So they're operating without all of this tons of information, which are filling in all the blanks of these stories and informing us of what really happened. So, so here's a detail, which is uh, an example of this. Forty days after getting the 40 days after, after the Torah is uh, given, that's when the sin of the golden calf takes place. The Jewish people are expecting Moshe to come down from the mountain. And they didn't calculate properly. In other words, they started counting the 40 days from when Moshe went up the mountain instead of counting it the day later once Moshe's on the mountain. As a result, they think he's supposed to come down sooner. As a result, when he doesn't come down, they're like, what happened to Moshe? Now, it says that Hashem, 
Remember, in Judaism, there's only one power. We don't have it's God against the devil. Who's going to win? That, that's not Judaism. <laughs> there's only God. There's only God. So evil works for God. In other words, all of the dissonance, all of the challenge, all of the questions that we have in this world are an aspect of the incompletion of the world, the incompleteness of the world. As, as I tell you all the time, right, everyone's got the same question, which is that if, the, if there's a God, why is the world so messed up? This is everybody's question, whether they can articulate it or not. If there's a God, why is the world so messed up? And the answer is because the world isn't finished yet, right? The, the, the example that I always love to give is that you imagine walking into the kitchen and there's a glass bowl with brownie mix and a raw egg on top. And you dip your fingers into the raw egg and the brownie mix and you say, these brownies are terrible. <laughs> and the person says, they're not done yet. That's, that's this world. It's not done yet. And even more important than that, that's why God made us to be partners with him to finish off the world. You see, anyone who says that the world was in a state of perfection and then we blew it in the Garden of Eden, right? And now we're just trying to get back to zero. We've, you know, we're, we've been in the red and now we just kind of got to get back to zero. That's not, that's not the Torah vision of this world, Okay. As Reb Shlomo said so brilliantly, if the Garden of Eden was so perfect, what was the snake doing there? Do you understand? It was waiting to be completed by us from the very outset. And and the problem is, is that as we make more problems, we create more problems that we have to fix. And as Rabbi Green said so brilliantly, remember, human beings were created on the sixth day of creation. The seventh day of creation is Shabbos. The the messianic era, the the time of perfection, the the, the era that Hashem had in mind before he created the world and just created the world to get to this place of perfection, right, is called the day that will be all Shabbos. Yom Shekulo Shabbos. So the seventh day of creation could have been Yom Shekulo Shabbos, the era of perfection. So human beings are created on the eve of the seventh day. That's called Erev Shabbos, okay? Now listen to this, listen to this. What's happened for the last several thousand years is that Erev Shabbos has just been extended. Do you understand? It's just this lengthening of this period of Erev Shabbos, trying to get back to that place of Shabbos or get to that place of Shabbos, get to that place of Shabbos. Okay. So now let's get back to the problem. We've got this concept of Choser Lener, which is reawakening old problems. 
When we ate from the tree of knowledge, on a deep level, we made ourselves the final authority, which was like making ourselves God. Then we get the Torah of Mount Sinai and we go, God, only you're God. And that was the fixing of that issue. Then we worship the golden calf because we just decided to do it on our own. How did, what went wrong? What went wrong? We experienced the oneness of God in the most amazing way. What went wrong? Okay. So now I told you that the heir of Rav, this, this, this multitude of Egyptians who were super steeped in idol worship, joined the Jewish people, and now Moshe is supposed to come down from the mountain and he's late. Now at this point, the Satan, right? Remember, we've got three aspects of this negative energy of challenge in the world. And the Talmud says that they're all one. They're different points along the spectrum of this energy of challenge in this world. What are the three categories of it? There's the Yetzahara, right? That's the negative inclination. It sort of, so to speak, attacks our soul, tries to make us make bad decisions, okay? That's the negative inclination, the Yetzahara. There's the Malach Hamavis, that's the angel of death that attacks a person's body. Okay, that's, a, that's another level of the same energy, same energy. And then you have the Satan, right? Or the Satan, right? Which is a heavenly accuser, which again is just another extension of this same energy. So the Satan shows the Jewish people, and this is the crucial part of the story that I was alluding to earlier, The Satan, when Moshe is late, shows the Jewish people an image of Moshe in his coffin, dead. (laughs) And the people are like, Moshe's dead. Moshe's dead. Now the heir of Rav panic big time. Right? This is the multitude of Egyptians who come along with the Jewish people, panic big time, and they say, Our intermediary to God, Moshe, is gone. We need to make a new intermediary. And so they make the golden calf. Now, it's not just anybody who makes the golden calf. Do you know who makes the golden calf? It's, it's, it's wild, like the way all these pieces come together. You have Aaron, right? Aaron, the high priest, Moshe's brother. Aaron, perfect tzaddik, 100% perfect tzaddik, is trying to delay the, the, the creation of the golden calf. Now, you've got a very interesting dynamic, which is how he tries to delay them. He tells everybody, okay, we'll make the golden calf, right? Now, really, he's just trying to delay them. He says, everyone, give me your golden earrings. Give me your gold, your golden jewelry. Now, why did he think that was going to work and delay them? So let's revisit the first line in the Via Hafta, right? That's the second paragraph of the Shema, or the first paragraph of the Shema. It says, you should love God with all of your heart, 
with all of your hearts, actually, which means your Yetzir Tov and your Yetzir right? Love God with all of your hearts. Love God with all of your soul, meaning that you would give up your life sooner than violating the cardinal mitzvot. And with all of your me'odecha, me'odecha is a really interesting word. It comes actually from the word ma'od, which means with all your very. So like very literally, God is telling you, love me with all your veriness, (laughs) meaning to say with all your passion, right? But the way it's actually translated in the here and now is with all of your money. Me'odecha actually means money, okay? So, so, and, and Rashi has a question on this. And if you think about it, you should have a question on it also. Because we're escalating in, in levels of attachment. So all of your heart, that's level one. Then we're going to go up higher. All of your soul, which means you're ready to give up your life. And then the next level, all of your money. Wait a second. Wouldn't you rather give up all of your money sooner than giving up all of your life? Shouldn't giving up all your money be stage two and then all your life, the ultimate? Except Rashi says, you ready for this? Amazing insight right now into human nature. People would rather give up their life than their money. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? That's why it goes number three. People would rather give up their life than their money. And I can't tell you that without telling you this um, example of this from American pop culture. Now, you know, before there were TV shows, there, there was the, there was there were radio shows, and like even the like the sitcom format existed, but just in radio form. And uh, this was before my time, but maybe some of you out there remember that 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 families would actually sit around the radio and watch the radio. There were no pictures, there was nothing to watch, but they would gather around the radio and watch the radio. Okay. And probably the most popular show on the air was the Jack Benny show. Jack Benny was, for those of you who don't know, was a totally beloved American icon and comic. And, you know, everyone's got comedic personas, like all great comedians have comedic personas. And his was that he was incredibly stingy. Okay? So what I'm about to tell you was the biggest, the longest recorded laugh in radio history. Okay, so someone, remember, he's incredibly stingy. So here's the joke. A gunman comes up to Jack Benny and he pulls out his gun and points his gun at Jack Benny and says, your money or your life. And there's a long silence. (laughs) And the gunman says, well, and Jack Benny says, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. (laughs) That was... The longest recorded laugh in radio history. Can you imagine? So, so anyway, here you see the truth, the resonance that people would rather give up their life than their money. Okay. So Aaron, right? This was not a secret to Aaron. Aaron Akoyim, thousands of three, 3,300 years ago, understood he's hit on the perfect delay tactic, right? If he can just buy some time till Moshe comes down from the mountain and I know how to do it, 
I'm going to tell everyone, give up your gold to make this statue. Except everyone gave their gold earrings immediately, and the rabbis said that they even ripped them out of their ears. All right, this was the level of the panic that was taking place at this moment. And so now you had a a vat of molten gold. And here's the other cool detail. Bilaam's children, Bilaam's son. Now remember, who is Bilaam? Bilaam was the one who advised Pharaoh to kill all the Jewish children. Okay, Bilaam is like the worst. Bilaam is also the one who comes back later and tries to get the Jews to do idol worship so that they'll be vulnerable for divine retribution. And Kabbalistically, we say the following, just in case you don't fully appreciate how completely evil Bilaam is. That Bilaam, his energy, his soul force, actually comes from the snake in the Garden of Eden. And that that snake got reincarnated as Lovin. Remember, Lovin tries to kill the Jewish people when they're just a single family. It's just Jacob and Leah and Rachel and the, and the, and the children... Lovin is trying to like wipe them out before they can before the Jewish people can get off the ground. And then Lovin becomes, and remember, just one of the amazing things about Lovin is Lovin, Lavan in Hebrew means white. Because sometimes evil comes to you presenting itself as righteousness. A very potent lesson there. Okay? Like, like I'm good. I love you. You don't love me. (laughs) I understand you say you love me. You might even think you love me, but you don't love me. Okay? If you love me, you'll leave me alone. All right? That's, that's, That's loving. That's Lavan, you know? And that's the snake. And then Lavan gets reincarnated as Bilaam. So Bilaam is bad to the bone, okay? Now, here's something that I think is really interesting. You see, I, I don't know. I have, to, I have to look into the source material because this, this, may, this thought that I'm about to share with you might just be a product of my own ignorance um, or it might be a really cool insight. <laughs> I, the jury is out. Um, but I'll tell you anyway. I'll tell you the two sides of it, right? Which is, I want to make a contrast or a comparison right now between... Paro's daughter and Lovin's son, or I'm sorry, Bilaam's son. See, a lot of people don't know this detail, and I, I, I just think this is such a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful detail. Everyone should know this. And again, it's a, just yet another example how you can't understand the Torah without knowing the Talmud and, and how we have the Talmud. You know, that's, that's why we understand the, the, the Torah and the Bible differently from, from everyone. Okay, so so anyway, Paro, with the advice from Bilam, okay, decides to kill kill the babies, 
wants to kill the babies because he knows that a leader is going to rise up from that generation and free the Jews. Okay. And what happens, and you know, if you kind of want to be a little bit casual, you can call this God's sense of humor, but I don't really like that phrase, even though I just brought it up. I think, uh, I think we can do better than that. But you see that God says, okay, you want, you want to kill out the one who's going to lead the Jews? I'm going to make you raise him as your own son in your own house, <laughs> which is what Paro does. But there's an in-between step there. How did it happen that, how did it happen that Paro raises Moshe in his own house? And that in-between step is fascinating. Paro's daughter goes down to the Nile and she sees Moshe and she rescues him. But why did Paro's daughter go to the Nile? That's the question. And the answer was because she was going to convert to Judaism. She was going to take a mikvah and convert to Judaism and wash herself off of all the idolatry. That's amazing. That's amazing. Now, the reason why I'm bringing up that story right now is, and by the way, I'll just tell you an insight that I had one time. The Talmud learns that out from the word al. Al is gematria 100. And you know what else is gematria 100? The phrase lech lecha. So she's having this like lech lecha moment, Paro's daughter, you know? Anyway, isn't it interesting that Bilaam, the hated Bilaam, that his son also leaves with the Jewish people? Isn't that interesting? Now, here's the part, all that's true, but here's the part that I'm a little bit unsure of, and I have to check. Did he leave to sabotage the Jews? The son? Was he essentially like an extension of his father, an agent of his father? Or did he just have a moment of panic and he was trying to do the best thing? But because he was so steeped in idol worship, he just basically made matters worse. That, that, that's the question. But anyway, let's get back to the story. Aaron tries this delay tactic. Everyone throws their earrings, rips their earrings out of their ears. You've got a molten pot of gold here. And now Bilaam's son has this Hebrew phrase that's written and he throws it into the molten pot of gold and out leaps the golden calf. Okay? It's like, you know, Bilaam was this like, dark wizard, basically, and gave over, I guess, some of these techniques to his children. And out comes the golden calf. And then what happens, and this is the thing you could say, well, look, can't we be sympathetic? You had a nation steeped in idol worship, They want to do the right thing. They saw that God, your God, they left their homes, they left their lives, they went out into the desert to be one with you. 
Can't you just forgive that? So the answer is maybe. Maybe yes, and maybe that would have been the end of it if that was the end of it. But now there's one more event that happens which turns this into the horror story that it's become for all time. And that's the party that they threw for the golden calf. During which time there was adultery, incest, murder. All those things took place after the fact. And Moshe comes down from the mountain and he sees that level of celebration taking place, that unbridled release of, you know, whatever, our most animalistic side. And Moshe smashes the tablets. Okay, a couple important details. If you don't know these things, you don't understand the story at all, so let me just throw them in. It was limited. You had approximately two and a half million people at Mount Sinai. And it says that basically 3,000 people were killed for having done this. These were the seemingly the most active participants. Now, one life is, is, is too many to lose, right? I'm not, I'm not uh, diminishing the value of one life. One life is too many. However, we also have to have perspective here. And when we say it's 3,000 among two and a half million, you understand that the entire Jewish people did not fall into this activity at all. Okay, now we're going to basically, we're getting back to our question about Choser Lanier. We're working back toward it right now, just in case you want to look at your roadmap. Okay. And we're going to answer some questions, but we just have to do a little more, little more work about the story itself, and then we're going to get back to our, 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 our insight. Okay. So that's number one. It was, it was limited. This activity was limited to the heir of Rav. Okay. All right. So. What was the problem with the Jewish... What, why is the whole Jewish people blamed for this? Because the Jewish people, while it was going on, we didn't stop this activity among the heir of Rav, who were also Jews. Okay, they were new arrivals, but still, they were also Jews. So we didn't stop this activity among the heir of Rav, and because we didn't stop that activity we were implicated as well. And so when they talk about, when we talk about the sin of the golden calf, we're all implicated. Okay. Why? That seems maybe unfair. It seems maybe unfair that we're all lumped together into this. Okay? Okay. So now let's go deeper. And let's return back to our question. My question is, if at Mount Sinai, I corrected the problem of the tree of knowledge, and I said, God, only you are God, 
right? And we got back to Adam and Eve before they ate from the tree of knowledge, right? How is it possible that I could reinstate myself as God by deciding to to um, to make the golden calf, which is what the Erev Rav did and which we allowed them to do? So, so now let's return back to the pot of chicken soup and then we're going to return back to the golden calf. Okay, let's review. I've got a pot of chicken soup and a drop of milk falls into the pot of chicken soup. If I have 60 times the chicken soup than the milk, <clears throat> it's still kosher and I can still drink the chicken soup. If now accidentally a second time more milk falls into the chicken soup and I don't have 60 times the new amount, which now has reawakened the old amount. So now I've got a combined total of the new, the new milk and the old milk are one unit now. And if I haven't got 60 times that, you got to throw away the whole pot. How do I get out of that situation when the, when the, when the new milk falls in? How do I get out of that situation? So you could say, and this is incorrect, as I explained to you before, you could say, oh, I'll just pour more chicken soup into the pot, and now I have 60 times the amount, and I'm good. Right? That, that, that solution doesn't work. But I'm going to give you a new solution. I'm going to give you a new solution. You ready? You see... When I ate from the tree of knowledge and I made myself the final authority, we've got one of the kind of foundational thoughts in all of Judaism is from King David in the Psalms. It's sur meirah v'yaseh tov, which means move away from bad and do good. In other words, when you want to attach yourself to God, there's two essential components. It's not just moving away from the bad. It's also separately adding good. You see, if I want to do tshuva, if I want to return to God after thinking that I'm God, I can do, I can, I can fix it by saying, no, 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 I'm not God. That's sur meira. That's moving away from the bad. But unless I'm adding va'asetov, unless I'm now adding even more amuna, more faith in God, more chicken soup to the pot, <laughs> you see, this is my opportunity. You see, you know the way out of the problem when I put in the new milk into the, the pot of chicken soup and now I don't have 60? Well, what if I had more chicken soup in that pot to begin with when the second milk fell in? What if I have so much amuna that when that second problem happens, I still have batal bashishim? I have so much amuna that even after that second mistake, I have batal bashishim. I have so much faith. I have so much faith that when that second problem happens, it's not a problem because I have the Amuna there to address it, and it's there in the bank right away. Okay, let's put it back to the here and now level. All right? Remember we were talking about 
how this is. I'm talking about real things here. I'm talking about our lives. I'm talking about you and your neighbor and your children and your wives and your co-workers. They hurt you that first time and you forgive them. But then they hurt you again. Right? And then it combines with the old hurt and then you, you just can't forgive them. Right? Now I'm talking about I'm not talking about, understand this example in the best way. I'm not talking about being like a candidate for being, you know, a victim of abuse right now. Just understand the intention behind me. I'm not talking about staying in a dysfunctional relationship. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, say, in a marriage relationship where you both parties really see the best in each other and are really trying to make the the relationship work or any friendship or, you know, anything like this. Okay. So I'm coming from the most positive side, a relationship that's worth repairing and worth keeping, like us and God, because that's ultimately what this is giving an example for. But it's true in our own lives as well. So what's the point? That first time when they hurt me, I forgave them. That's the sur meirah, going away from bad. I forgave them. But did I love them more? You see, if I loved them more also, and that was part and parcel of my forgiving them, do you know what that does? That puts more chicken soup in the pot. (laughs) So that when that second mistake happens, there's enough love there. There's enough chicken soup there to cancel out the new problem. Rav Soloveitchik says, do you know what Yom Kippur is about? It's not just about, I did bad, I'm sorry I did bad, God. It's about restoring the relationship with God. That's the asetov, that's the do good. The surmeira is, you know what, I did these things which were against you, God, I'm not going to do them anymore. That's fantastic, very valuable. That's sur meirah. That's move away from bad. But we need the restoration of the relationship. That's the asetov. That's the do good. You see, that's the way out of this chicken soup problem in the choser veneer. And we're going to get back to the golden calf. Don't worry. That's the choser veneer. If I don't have enough soup there, then you got to throw out the whole pot. But if I've got even more soup there, so that when I made the problem the second time, there was so much soup there, it wasn't a problem, then it's good. All right. So now let's get back to our question. When God spoke at Mount Sinai, we said, God, only you are God. We got rid of the, the problem of the tree of knowledge, of thinking I'm the final authority. We see God, you're, only you are God. Our souls left our bodies. We saw that God exists even not just in this world, but in the highest heavens. It's only Hashem. There's only one God. It's only God. There is no other power than God. We saw it. But when we came back down into this world, you ready? Here's the answer. We didn't see the godliness in each other. Because if we saw the godliness in each other, we would have stopped them from worshiping the golden calf. 
You see, the essential framework of worshiping God, all 613 mitzvahs fall into two categories. There's Adam Lamakom, that's a person in God, but there's also Adam Lechavero, that's also a person and his fellow human being. And there's so many people who are quote-unquote religious and they're just doing one side of the equation. It's just about social justice. I just got to march and if I march and I, you know, and I have my placard, I'm good. I don't have to keep the mitzvahs. Okay. It's good to march. It doesn't mean it's not good to march. It's good to march. Or if I... If I'm keeping Shabbos and I'm keeping the commandments, you know what? If I bump into you online, I don't have to say, excuse me, I keep Shabbos. What do I have to say, excuse me, to you for? It also doesn't work. Right? It's great that I'm keeping Shabbos, but what about the godliness in you? I've got to honor the godliness in you too. So, A full understanding of God is not complete unless we see it in the world around us and in each other. And that's why I think the Jewish people are held accountable for the activities of the heir of Rav, even though it was limited in terms of, at least on a brute numbers level, Because somehow we said, oh, that's their business. What do you mean that's their business? It says before we got the Torah, it says that we were like one person with one heart. Well, that's including the Arab Rav, isn't it? It sure the heck is. We were one people with one heart. We made a vessel to hold the highest light that's ever come down. But somehow, after we got the Torah, we didn't bring it down more fully in a grounded way in terms of seeing the godliness in each other, because otherwise we never would have allowed that to happen. It it, it wouldn't have happened. And now I want to connect that to something very, very deep. Listen to this. Aaron says, part of his delay tactic, part of his delay tactic was that um, he says, tomorrow, he says, everyone, give me your gold. And then it says, tomorrow is going to be a festival. Now, what he was doing again was trying to buy time for Moshe to come down from the mountain. There wasn't one atom in the the being of Aaron that thought that, that, that we need a golden calf. Believe me, he was completely, 100% free from that. But he's trying to buy some time. And he says, tomorrow's going to be a festival. And in the here and now level, what that means is, you know, tomorrow we'll worship the golden calf. But let me tell you something on a much deeper level. What he was alluding to was tomorrow, Moshe Rabbeinu 
is going to come down to terra firma, to the ground. He's going to come down from the mountain holding the tablets. And that was going to be the completion of the receiving of the Torah. In other words, you know, you've got stages in a deal being closed. Like the house can be an escrow. Do you own the house? It's an escrow, right? You kind of own the house. It's not own, own, own it. But you kind of own it. We accepted the Torah. Did we fully, fully, was all the ink dry on all the paper? Not exactly. Moshe had not come down to the ground with the tablets yet. And what I want to say is that there's a correlation between Moshe coming down to the ground with the tablets and our realization that God exists in all of our fellow human beings. That's the grounded idea that not, that not just God is up there, but God is down here and within us as well, an aspect of God, not the totality of God. God, only God is God. But that final stage of it clicking in, which correlates with this ultimate festival that was going to take place that Aaron is alluding to, of Moshe being on terra firma on the ground with the tablets, correlates with our idea that God exists within each other. And if we fully understood that, we never would have allowed the heir of Rav to make this golden calf. We would have nipped it in the bud. Okay. And now, I want to tell you a story. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up with this, okay? And I love this story. Um, I love this story because it's a Baal Shem Tov story. But what's even better about it is it's being told by the Sadagori Rebbe. Now, the Sadagori Rebbe was the son, one of the sons of the Rishner Rebbe who in his day was like the dean of the Rebbe's, like all the other Rebbe's came to see the Rishner Rebbe, okay? And the Rishner Rebbe was, you know, very, very great. He was a descendant of King David, and there's, there's books and books and books you can say about the Rishner Rebbe, okay? And he had a number of sons, and they all became very prominent Rebbe's, including the Sadagora Rebbe, okay? So it's one thing to tell a Baal Shem Tov story, and to try to interpret it and understand the meaning of it. But what I love about this is that you're going to hear a tzaddik. The Sadagor Rebbe was a tzaddik. You're going to hear a tzaddik's interpretation of a Baal Shem Tov story. See? Isn't that special? Okay, so, so there's really two parts to this. We're going to have the story, and we're going to have the interpretation of the story through the eyes of a tzaddik. And the reason why this is so meaningful to me is because I would not have said what the Sadagora Rebbe has said. <laughs> and, and it gives me an appreciation for how a tzaddik thinks. Do you understand? Okay. So here's the story. The Baal Shem Tov comes to a village before Shabbos starts. And um, he seems like very, like in his thoughts, very like troubled, right? And the people in the town, the, you know, Shabbos is going to start, the Baal Shem Tov is here. Different people invite him to their house. He refuses all the invitations. He just wants to be in the, in the base medrash, right, in the shul. 
and he's davening the whole night, he's praying, he's saying to Hillam, he's working really, really hard, the Baal Shem Tov, the whole night. The next day they see the Baal Shem Tov, he's in a very good mood. Um, someone invites him for lunch, and he accepts the invitation. It's like night and day from, 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 from the nighttime, okay? And he's in a good mood, he's eating lunch, and now all of a sudden a non-Jewish um, person from the village starts making a ruckus. He's banging on doors and he's demanding vodka. Okay? And people are like, you know, they don't know what to do with this guy and they're trying to send him away. And the Baal Shem Tov says, no, 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 bring him in, bring him in. It's okay, it's okay. So he comes in and, and they give him a big glass of vodka and he drinks the vodka. And, and then the Baal Shem Tov says to him, Tell me about last night. What happened last night? What were you doing last night? And he says, oh, last night. He says, last night, the landowner, the Poritz, um, was organizing a pogrom, a pogrom against this village. Now, you know, if you don't know what a pogrom is, that's a basically a murder party, right? Like the people would come in and they would just like set houses on fire and Rape and murder, you know? Unfortunately, we were the victims of pogroms for many centuries. And the this landowner was organizing a pogrom. And, uh, and then something strange happened. Someone who the landowner, the Poritz, hadn't seen in 40 years, shows up and goes into the room with the with the landowner, they close the door, and they're in there for hours. And finally, at the end of the whole thing, the, the landowner comes out and he tells everybody the pogrom is off, and anyone who, who bothers the Jews is going to be severely punished. So, that's the end of the story. <laughs> So now, now you understand what happened, why the Baal Shem Tov was, was so distressed. He, was, he understood that there was a decree that was a terrible decree against the Jewish people, and he was up all night davening and praying that this decree should be canceled. And the Sadagori Rebbe said that his prayers reached such a high place that a friend that had been a, of the landowner who was dead for years, rose from the dead in order to to sort of like, you know, speak with the landowner. So that's a, another miracle that's part of this story. Okay, now listen to this. You ready for this? Now let's get to part two, the Sadagori Rebbe, the Tzaddik's understanding of this story. Well, the Sadagori Rebbe, believe it or not, has a question on this story. And if we had time, I would ask you to see if you could figure out what is the Sadagori Rebbe's question on this story. All right? So I'm, I'm just going to tell you. You ready? His, his question is, if all, of the, if all that the Baal Shem Tov was doing was praying... To, in order to eradicate this decree, why didn't why didn't he just do it from his home? 
why did the Baal Shem Tov have to travel all the way to this village in order to pray when he could have done the same prayers in his own home? Do you hear the question? Okay, first of all, I never would have asked that question, I don't think. But for sure, maybe I would ask that question. I don't know. But for sure, I would not have come up with this answer. So the Sadagori Rebbe said, you ready for this? The reason why the Baal Shem Tov traveled all the way to this village in order to say these prayers, which he could have said at his own home, was because if his prayers didn't work, he wanted to die alongside the rest of the villagers. This is how tzaddikim think. This is how our holy ones think. And if you think about it, you know, you see it throughout Jewish history. And you see it in the Holocaust. So many stories about leaders of communities who had the papers, were given the papers to to leave Europe and they wouldn't abandon their communities. And not to say for those who, who did go to Israel that, that, that they are somehow lacking at all. God forbid not to say such a thing. But nonetheless, you see many, 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 many examples of leaders who stayed with their community and died along with them. Many examples of this. And this is how tzaddikim think. This is how how our holy ones think. And they say that this this is the example that's broad for Aaron, understanding Aaron as well. Why was Aaron participating in, 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 in building this golden calf, for goodness sakes. Because he was trying to save the Jewish people and trying to delay it for Moshe to come. But he said, you know something? So great is my love for all of the Jewish people that I will fall, I will fall with this element if need be in order to try to save them. And so Aaron got it. Aaron got that God is absolutely everywhere. You know, someone asked Reb Shlomo one time, what do you, why do you do what you do? Maybe that's not allowed, what you do. Why do you do what you do? You know, Reb Shlomo went into ashrams and went into places where a person is not supposed to go. And he he would do that to try to find Jewish souls and to bring them back. And you know, one of my favorite Reb Shlomo stories, there was a, a Swami that he was kind of doing this program with at, at the Swami's ashram. And the Swami all of a sudden said to Shlomo, I know what you're doing. You're trying to steal my followers. And Reb Shlomo said right back to him, no, 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 no. I'm just borrowing them back. (laughs) So they asked Reb Shlomo, why do you do what you do? And you know what he said? Listen to this. 
He said, you know what? Maybe I'll get hell, but maybe they'll get heaven. That was the depths of his, of his love for his fellow human being. And you see it by Aaron. You see it by the Sadagori Rebbe's understanding. You see it by the Baal Shem Tov. And now we have to see it within each other. We have to see it within each other. When we try to fix past mistakes, it's not just I'm not doing the past mistake anymore. I have to restore my relationship with God. I have to add chicken soup to the pot so that if a new problem happens, I've got so much new love and so much new connection to God that even that new problem is not a contradiction or a deal breaker. Because I didn't just cease from the bad, I increased in the good. I increased in the love, I increased in my talking to God. I increased in my seeing God in all things. I increased in my understanding that God is good, even if I don't understand Him, even if there's suffering, that God is good. And if I can keep on increasing in that, as new problems take place, there will be so much good Those new problems won't be deal breakers. I'll be able to continue on in a straight path in terms of my service of God. Okay, we'll stop there. So in the end, um, God does forgive us. And not only does he forgive us, but he, it's not just that Moshe prays and then God forgives us. God tells Moshe to pray for our forgiveness. And this is, on a very, very deep level, you see, we say Kabbalistically that Noah, Noah, as in Noah's Ark, is reincarnated as Moshe. Okay, so why did Noah have to be reincarnated? And the, the answer is that, that Noah theoretically should have prayed when God told him, I'm going to wipe out the world and start over with you, Noah should have said, don't wipe out the world. But you see, that, that level of prayer, I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Zohar, hadn't entered into the world yet, which is, that in itself is a very interesting idea. But, but let me make it clear. Our concept of what is a tzaddik, and it says this in Perkei Avos, right? This is kind of Judaism 101. What, what everyone is supposed to do is you want to make God's will your will, right? And, and, and to the extent that there's a one-to-one correlation, you, then that's great. So God says to Noach, I'm going to wipe out the world. And Noach says, okay what should I do? <laughs> and God says, make an ark. And Noah says, okay, that's what you want, God. That's what I'm doing. So if you think about it, it's kind of unfair because we get very mad at Noah. We say, Noah, why didn't you pray like Moshe prayed? That when God said, I'm going to send a flood to wipe out the world, why didn't you say, no, God, don't do it? Mm-hmm. Okay, now listen to this. And what I'm telling you right now is from the Gomorrah. This is the Talmud speaking. When God said to Moshe, after the sin of the golden calf, I'm going to wipe out the Jewish people, 
Moshe didn't say anything. And then God says, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm using my own words, then God says, Moshe, stop trying to stop me. And then Moshe said, oh, I'm supposed to stop you. (laughs) That's amazing. And this is the Talmud. This is the Talmud. Because even Moshe Rabbeinu didn't understand instantly. In other words, this idea that God, your will is my will. So even Moshe had to be told. But let's flip that around. It, what it means on a more, you know, on a wider level is that God was determined to save the Jewish people. That as much as God was expressing his anger, God was also instructing Moshe because God himself wanted to forgive the Jewish people and not hold us accountable for this. And that is an essential PS to this entire story, and I'll tell you why. And this is, again, an essential piece of information that you can't understand the whole story. You can't understand the, the whole story of the golden calf without understanding this. Which is that the, the Talmud says that, oh, if, if everyone could mute themselves, that would, that would be great. Um, the, yeah, yeah, Lynn, if you want to mute yourself, yeah, thanks. Um, uh, the Talmud says that the entire golden calf story was basically an instruction for future generations, that even entire communities can be forgiven for their wrongdoing. God said, I'm going to show you how the Jewish people who have just gotten the Torah at Mount Sinai, who have just heard God's word directly on a mass level. Remember, this is so crucial in understanding the truth of Torah, the truth of Judaism. No other religion, every other religion has their guy, so to speak, okay? And it's sort of like, he says, I heard the word of God, trust me, right? Every other religion has that. No other religion has two and a half million people simultaneously hearing the word of God and all hearing the same thing. And any religion who would claim such a thing would be foolish to claim such a thing because it's so easily disproven. I mean, it's amazing that Judaism makes this claim and everyone accepts it. Do you know why? Because it happened. And do you know why other religions model themselves on Judaism? Because they've got this inescapable foundation of divine communication to people. Except Judaism adds one more clause, which is that you can't add to this and you can't subtract from it. Which is a knockout punch to all other religions who try to base themselves on Judaism. 
because they're simultaneously trying to use Judaism as the foundation of their thought, but Judaism itself doesn't allow them to, because Judaism says you cannot add and you cannot subtract. Do you understand? So, so God was trying to show all future generations that even a people who just heard God's word and did this flagrant error can be forgiven. So if it really was a divine setup that we should fall into this trap, remember, how did the whole thing start? God shows us an image, or the Satan, who's working for God, shows us an image of a dead Moshe. Right? So if God triggered this whole thing, doesn't it make sense that God is going to also forgive us? (laughs) This is why God instructs Moshe, now stop trying to stop me. Oh, I'm supposed to try to stop you. Because God's plan all along was to forgive us. Okay, that's, again, an essential part of this story. Okay. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.